Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to the Profile Podcast. That's right, this week this is a podcast only special edition. You won't be hearing this on Premier Christian Radio. We've dug back into the archives to bring you, dear podcast listener, an episode of the Profile that was aired on Premier Christian Radio back in late 2016, and we thought this would be a great story for you to hear. It's an interview I did with John Lawson. He's got quite a remarkable testimony of living a very violent life and God meeting him and everything changing. His book is called If a Wicked Man, and we get into a bit of why the book is called that in this interview. Before we do, this programme, this podcast, I should say, is brought to you in association with the magazine that I edit. It's Premier Christianity magazine, the UK's leading Christian magazine. We have an amazing 50-year track record of bringing you interviews, features, reviews, columnists and more. If you'd like to get on board, if you would like to see what it's all about, why not request a free copy of the latest edition of the magazine? Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Our cover story this month is a brilliant one. It's about the Pope. Uh, If you turn inside, you'll find features on Jordan B. Peterson. He's the rock star psychologist taking the world by storm at the moment. You'll also find an article on Rich Wilkerson Jr. He is the pastor who married Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. I got to interview him. You'll actually be hearing the audio of that very soon here on the profile. But if you want to get ahead and read not only my interview, but also some of the reflections I had upon meeting him, then check that out. It's in the latest edition of Premier Christianity magazine. The link one more time is premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Okay, let's get into it. Here is my interview with John Lawson. John, welcome to The Profile. I wondered if uh, we could start by you telling us a little bit about life growing up. Was it an easy childhood? Um, Yeah, you know, when you're a kid, life is just life, right? You don't don't really uh, notice any difference because you haven't got anything to measure it against. Mm. But uh, I was born in Glasgow. I know I don't have a a big Scottish accent. When I was three, we emigrated to South Africa. Uh, my dad, my mum, we ended up living in Durban, and my father, he joined the police force. My mum got a nice job, and this was vastly different, uh, Sam, to what we had in Glasgow. We lived in the tenement buildings where we shared our flat with uh, lots of members of our family. Um, there's uh, The Scottish comedian Billy Connolly said he remembers those days, and the only good thing about that, of sharing a, a toilet on the landing with all the other families is... You always got a warm seat in the winter, <laughs> and that's kind of really how I remember it. Right. Um, but South Africa, wow, that was totally different. We had our our own apartment, and uh, then we got a coloured TV, which was amazing, and um, life was very very different. It was in the era of apartheid, but mm-hmm. when you're a kid again, you don't notice that. Mm-hmm. We we would have lived in a very white area, and um, growing up with British expats. Um, it, we did begin to notice a bit of a difference in the way uh, black people were treated as to white people. And there were elements of that which felt uncomfortable. Um, but it's amazing how people can get used to what is uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, what we uh, what we tolerate today, we accept tomorrow. Yeah. And so life was just normal for me. I grew up, um, I guess went from being a, a wee Glasgow boy to to go into quite a posh school. Mm-hmm. The area we lived in was very middle class uh, compared to back here. And um, I went to school where I wore a safari suit and a cap like cricketers wear when they, they get awarded like an England cap yeah. and a satchel. And um, my little brother Alex was born when I was six and everything seemed to be good. Yeah, we everything had a nice good. life. Yeah. I loved the outdoors. 
I loved climbing the trees and um, playing with the monkeys. There used to be lots of monkeys in the area that I lived in. So, yeah, it was fun. I felt like I was in a Tarzan movie. Yeah, <laughs> great fun for little kids in uh, in South Africa. But you were soon to come back to the UK. What was it that brought you back? Well, my grandfather, my mum's dad, uh, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So they said to my mum, you should come home quickly um, if you want to see your father alive again. And arrangements were made for my mum to come back. My grandparents and family had moved from Glasgow to Birkenhead and Merseyside at that point. Again, to get out of the tenements and they heard that you could have a whole house to yourself, which was fantastic. And so they were living there, and mum came back quickly. With She came back with my little brother, because in those days it was fantastic. If your child was under two, they could fly free mm. on the aeroplane, which yeah. was great. And um, I stayed in South Africa with my dad uh, just to finish the term at school. And, of course, we didn't know how long my mum was going to be there, uh, the funeral and all that kind of thing, so... There was going to be two courses of action. One, my dad would quit his job in the police, sell up our flat, and we would come back to together. Or my mum would come back uh, to South Africa. So no clear decision had been made at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I missed my mum terribly when she was gone. I didn't miss my brother so much because he was a real pain. He really, <laughs> really was. Um, but thankfully, we get on well today. And um, what happened was, actually... None of us knew my dad was having an affair with another woman that he'd met. And he seized upon this opportunity to get rid of us as a family. And I guess he did the unthinkable for a father and a child as he locked me in our apartment one day as school finished at Christmas time. In South Africa, the long summer holidays, they're at Christmas time because that's when they have their summer. So the big long holidays had just begun. And uh, he locked me in our flat and he said, if it gets dark, just go to bed. Uh, be a brave boy, and uh, off he went for a, a long weekend with this woman. So he left and he never came back. And you were locked in that room for for four days? I was locked in the flat for four days. Um, I don't have much memory of that at all. It's a very dark place in my mind. I don't remember it at all. For years, I kept having a recurring dream of the front door to the flat, the door frame cracking and the door being kicked open. But I could never piece it together. Mm. It wasn't until I went back to South Africa in 1986, I actually met the people, friends of the family, who kicked that door in and rescued me, I guess, from wow. the flat. Yeah. Um, because they said to me, oh, we've never spoken to your father since those days. It was dreadful what he did. Yeah. I said, well, you know, lots of families get divorced and, yeah, it's a shame he's never been in touch, but... You know, these things happen. And they were like, no, no, what he did to you. And I was like, well, what do you mean what he did to me? And they explained that they had come on the Monday. I'd been in there from Thursday. They came Monday evening and broke open the door. And they found me on the floor and uh, a bit distressed. And I hadn't eaten for a couple of days. And the all I can remember is waking up in their house. And I can remember staying at their place before being shipped back to the UK. Wow. So um, that, that's my memory of it's quite vague, and they they had to fill in the pieces that yeah. I, that I'd forgotten. But then back in back in the UK, my grandfather died quite quickly, and Gran and the house had to go. So, and of course, my mum was told that my dad was having an affair and wasn't going to come back. And then he came back to the UK, um, came up to see us in Scotland, promised we were all going to go back together, and left a week later with this other woman again. So it was quite. It was like so many blows that my mum received one mm-hmm. after the other, and then all of our possessions were in South Africa. Everything, our clothes, our home, uh, everything. So um, finally, we got somewhere to live, which at the time was the worst housing estate in the whole of Europe. Wow! This is Drum Chapel. Uh, Drum Chapel, yeah, just outside Glasgow. Um, it was built, I think, in the fifties and sixties as a, as a new town, but it soon developed into. I guess a place t- today where they would send all the asbos. Mm. Uh, anyone um, that had any problems would get shipped out there, which just began to devastate that community. And, w- and was this the kind of turning point for you? Because, I mean, notwithstanding what happened with your family, the family breakdown that happened there, but in general it sounds like South Africa was a fairly normal kind of time. But it sounds like when you moved to Drumchapel, this is a very different environment to be growing up in. Yeah, it was, it was like... Uh, 
I guess it's like taking a um, a cold glass out the fridge and then sticking it in the oven. It, mm. It's going to crack. Yeah, it's the extremes are are, are so far apart. Yeah, and although I was back in my native country, I was very much an alien. I I felt I spoke differently. I I um I was p- polite. Not that they weren't polite people, but I had these manners installed in me in South Africa. And there I was in the roughest housing state. And also I was shocked to see um, other young boys my age walking around sniffing bags of glue. I'd never seen that before. It's taking drugs out of their mind, carrying blades. There's a big knife culture in Scotland, which is no surprise because, I mean, even when I got married, I had a, a knife down my sock, really? you know, a skein do. So <laughs> it's part of our national costume. Um, but there's a big knife problem on a, on a serious note, still is in, in Scotland. And so it, I was really shocked at the um, the language, uh, the violence, and the way kids behaved in school. Because um, I would dare, never dare, speak back to a teacher in school. Uh, and all of a sudden, um, when I was giving answers in school, um, the teacher was calling me a smarty pants or whatever. Or I was just trying to be polite. And I I got the strap so many times for I don't know what. But in Scotland in those days, you'd you'd have this leather strap, this thong. And you'd, you'd get whacked with that across your hands. And that just really angered me about the establishment. Also, I had a dislike for the police now because my father was one. And I also can remember vividly being um, really angered at what they called domestic abuse mm. in those days. Um, there would be women in our close, so... for. <laughs> For all you English listeners, a close uh, would be uh, the apartment block itself, the the corridor. So there would be many screams I would hear. We would open our door, drunken husbands beating their wives, the police turning up and doing nothing. And that also reoccurred later when we moved to Birkenhead and Merseyside. We had neighbours that were badly abused and beaten um, by husbands and the police doing nothing about it unless the woman actually had an injunction. So that really angered me and I think... I also learned the value of violence because my first day at school, um, as is custom uh, or was custom in those days, the new boy always gets offered a fight by mm. the hardest lad of the year. Yeah, and uh, I can remember on the playing field him punching me in the head so many times, and I discovered an ability to be able to take pain and punishment and not really feel it very much. And somehow I won, and the next day in school, that was it. I was hailed a hero. Wow. So it was instilled in me quite quickly and abruptly that um, violence, taking the law into your own hands, is how you deal with things. Mm. That I guess that continued a few years later when we moved to Birkenhead. Mm-hmm. And again, we had neighbours around the corner um, who, who the husband would would just trash the house, smash the place up, beat his wife. They would have to run into our house to, to find uh, rescue. And I find myself at... 13 and 14 years old fighting a grown man uh, that was determined to to kill us you know it was it was crazy and then beating him because I was quite heavily into martial arts at that point and why did this guy want to he wanted to kill you you say what 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 had happened oh well he he um he was reg- regularly beating his wife and children um my brother recalls a story where um we heard screaming in the street and when we went outside uh, there was this man dragging his 13-year-old daughter by the hair along the pavement, and all the neighbours were out doing nothing, and, and I was just so infuriated. I, I ran up and karate kicked him right in his head and uh, to the cheers of the neighbours. Mm. And then another time, they had fled into our house while my mum was out, and he kicked the front door in, and he was trying to get to us in the back room. And I remember his hand, it was like the film The Shining, his hand came through the door, and I ended up stabbing his hand with a screwdriver, uh, and he ran out to the street, and then we got into a scrap, and the police came, and again, they did nothing. Right. So I was just really, really angered at and that frust- point. Frustrated, I guess, as well, at seeing seeing the police, but them doing so little. Yeah, and also their hands were tied by the legal system. So I've since discovered, speaking to many police officers, that that infuriated them. They would love to have arrested the guy. Right. But the law, as it stood, it was within the marriage. It was domestic violence. The wife really had to take out an injunction before they could arrest the husband. Um, things have changed today, which mm. is which is good. But yeah, I was, I guess, instilled with this uh, moral uh, high horse kind of attitude. 
and um, I grew up really, I grew up without that father figure that I had in early years, and in Birkenhead, I got involved in stupid things like breaking into factories and stealing things, anything for a bit of money, because now I had a desire for money and to better my life. Um, my uncles, my dad's brothers, were now making a lot of money in Soho, and uh, driving around in Rolls Royces and and making a lot of money, and so I, I wanted a piece of that particular action. Uh, I left school at a young age. Actually, no, I stayed on, I stayed on until I was 18, but I had no real qualifications, and the only thing I was good at by then was fighting. And I went into the nightclub industry, and I became a bouncer. I worked in a lot of different clubs around the northwest of England, and um, then... I got married at a very young age. I got married at 21. And by the time I was 22, I was divorced. Wow. So that was that was crazy. Um, she had met someone else, was having an affair. I ended up getting custody of my son. Back then, it was quite unusual, actually, for a man. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, actually, any other single fathers. Right. There's a lot about today. But uh, even th- in those days... Uh, any um, nursery activities were called um, mother and toddler groups. Mm, they had yeah. to change them a few years ago <laughs> to parent and, toddler, parent and toddler, but it was yeah. mother and toddler, and I was be like the only father that would go along to those. But again, I, I needed I needed money, and also the whole violent um, reinforcement uh, had grown strong in me because my mum's house had been broken into a few times, and I got hold of the local junkie and threatened him, and uh, he disclosed to the local police station actually who it was um, and that was quite interesting because when I went round to the police station the um, the sergeant said I, I can't disclose the name of the person but uh, it's in that file there on my desk and I'm just going out to the toilet wow. and uh, you won't look in it will you while I'm out the room uh, wink wink you know and so I, I took the law into my own hands again and um, recovered all the stuff and I thought, well, this is this is what you do. Yeah, and and there was a pattern of this in throughout your life, I guess. Of even though you're involved in in violent uh, behaviour or taking the law into your own hands, there was a sense of justifying it and saying, well, actually, this is this is a good thing for me to be doing because of whatever reason. So in that in that instance, well, okay, I beat this guy up, but he did nick stuff from me, so he had it coming. Was was that a sort of uh, a common way of thinking? Was it was it a way of of kind of justifying your actions to yourself? Do you think? Yeah, always. When I look back on it now, um, I think we always, all of us do that with whatever we do that we know is wrong. We try and find some justification as to why I did it. And um, I justified it by saying, well, they're the bad guys. Mm. Um, They're the thieves. They're the robbers. And so they get what they deserve. So the whole time I always considered myself the good guy on the side of good and law. I should have had a cape and a mask, I think, you know. (laughs) And um, a few people said I should have been a policeman, but um, I was soon to get involved in quite serious crime. I ended up getting my first prison sentence uh, when I headed down to London and I began to work for my uncles. They were involved with the Maltese Mafia in Soho. The Maltese Mafia ran most of the sex industry. And my uncles owned strip bars, hostess bars, uh, adult DVD shops, peep shows where... Men put a coin in a booth so they could see through the two-way mirror to a girl stripping off. Um, and all of that sordid uh, business was very lucrative. And um, my first jail sentence was nine months for a charge called robbery, where a customer, an American customer, who came into one of these, it was nothing but a clipper joint, was charged excessive amounts for his drinks, and didn't want to pay, I threatened him. And he paid and uh, ran into the arms of the police. I was arrested and sent to prison for four and a half months out of the nine. Which did nothing for me, really. It just uh, reinforced the fact that uh, um, money was my god. Mm -hmm. I got out of prison. My uncles had to send me home for a little bit to uh, keep the police off our family name. And uh, I went back on the doors and began to work in Manchester and Burnley and Blackburn, Oldham, uh, Liverpool. And I worked with a team of men who were ex-special forces. Um, And my brother, he also worked uh, on the doors with us. We would be sent to nightclubs 
We actually worked for one of the the, the uh, original gladiators from the program Gladiators, Warrior, who had a security company, and um, Mike Hearn was his name. And uh, he had this big security company, and uh, because of his name, we got quite a quite a, a lot of work. But as a team of men, we considered ourselves very professional. We weren't drinkers or smokers or drug takers. We trained together, and we would be sent to nightclubs where the local doorman couldn't handle the situation anymore. Maybe uh, because they were intimidated by local gangsters who have a reputation. And, you know, many people I've discovered live off their reputation mm. of fear. Um, and how you handle that is you bring in a team of professional um, doormen who are not from the area, who are not intimidated when somebody says, do you know who I am? So you were the you were the security when the other security failed? Yeah, very much so. We had to go and restore order into a nightclub, so we would go... From nightclub to nightclub, we maybe spend a maximum of a month. We would um, be very heavy-handed. We would deal with um, drug dealers, um, anyone that came to fight. We would deal with it very quickly, very sharply, very violently. Restore a sense of um, security, and then put a new team in place and move on to the next place. So the levels of violence began to to just get you know bigger and bigger. I guess, and I thrived on it because I was I was just an idiot, you see. So, I I liked violence, and I liked nothing better than to be paid for it. Mm. And uh, we prided ourselves on the fact that we were a good team, and we did a good job. And so, if anyone got hurt in that process, well, again, justifying it. Yeah, they were the troublemakers. Um, I also joined uh, a motorcycle gang at that time, and. Uh, Really, for security reasons, we've had to leave a lot of that out of out of the book. It it will just mention it briefly. Um, but I spent time with a, a motorcycle gang called the Nomads, and again, that's the kind of man I was. I love that lifestyle, the biker lifestyle, and I love the money. I then went back down to London, married a second time, and had uh, two more two more sons, and uh, went back down to London and joined my uncles again. And just really, to to my shame, I, I ran the biggest brothel in London, which my my cousins recently just got out of prison for managing. So it still obviously remained a family business long after I was gone. And um, that was a point when I was making a lot of money. I was having a big fallout with my uncle that was drinking too heavily. And I ended up coming back up to Scotland um, to try try the normal life, right. settle down. I was married, I had children now, and uh, of course I had my, my son, and my wife had a daughter when we met, so now we had four kids all of a sudden. So I tried to do the right thing, and I got a job as head of security, funnily enough, at a big shopping centre in Edinburgh. But the whole time, this lure of money, because mm. again, for me, money solved all of life's problems. And crime was paying for you as well. You know, it wasn't it wasn't just that this was a rebellious thing to do. It, it seemed to be a lifestyle that that led to some prosperity for you. That, you know, m- real money was starting to come in for this. Yeah, I'd, I'd made a lot of money, and um, by now I'd also trained to do um, a bit of bodyguarding work, and um, I worked for people like ACDC and REM and the Rolling Stones Rolling for a short Stones, time. Rolling Stones, incredible. What yeah. were they like? Oh, it was, to be honest with you, it was the most boring job I had <laughs> in my life. My job wasn't part of their personal bodyguard team. My job was to look after them when they came to stay at the hotels right. when they were on tour. Yeah. So my job would be to sit in a corridor on a chair outside Keith Richards' room for 12 hours on a night shift mm. and then hand over to the personal team in the morning. And, and that was that, that was, was it. it. Yeah. Okay, I had some interaction with them, and they were they were all very very pleasant, very polite. Uh, Mick Jagger was total tea, teetotaler and down the gym every morning. Um, a Buddhist and um, Keith Richards, well, he was wild. <laughs> he would party all night. Uh, but that really was the extent of it, you know. Um, I did get offered full time work with with them by their security manager, uh, which at this point I turned down because I was now making a bit more money on the side. Uh, it all started really one day when a friend of mine had trouble with a local drug dealer who he wanted chasing out of town. And uh, me and my men, we got involved. We we really went round to this man's house and just beat him in shameful ways and took all his money. Again, he couldn't report it to the police. We were doing society a favour. We chased him out of town. We just happened to capitalise on it. 
And um, that really um, began to put me in touch with um, a few people that also needed men like us that could deal with situations like that. Uh, I guess in the circles I was operating in by now, I was meeting so-called businessmen who were involved with um, huge amounts of fraud that, that, were owed, that were owed huge amounts of money. And those businessmen don't want to get their hands dirty. Mm. So they come to idiots like me and my men. And again, we thought we were the good guys, you know. You hire us. We were like the A-team. You know, you, if you're in trouble, no one else can help. Well, we can help, you know. Mm -hmm. And we would be the ones that would be sent after you if you had been stupid enough to have stolen money from these kind of people. Yeah. And that's how out of control my life had become. And yet, for me, it was just normal. I was holding down a normal job. And then just every now and again, when a job came in, uh, we would go off to places like Spain, to the Costa del Crime, as they called it, and find people that owed millions of pounds. So there were several week operations where a lot of surveillance was required and um, planning. I, I used to love all that, the planning of the operation, how we were going to take the guy down, how how was he going to transfer the money. A lot of the money had to get transferred via fast track Swift, uh, Swift accounts through Swiss banks and um, we would get a big commission, a big piece of the pie, plus whatever money was in the safes and the this houses. Could be, this could be millions of pounds, couldn't it? Yes, well, there was one guy in Spain who owed 13 million, and so we stood to, to earn about 1.3 million in commission. Plus, um, the lure for us, or the carrot at the end of the stick, was we knew uh, from sources on the inside that he had roughly a million pounds in cash at his property, and anything in, in cash at the property would be ours. So wow. that lure was mm. always there, and um, we ended up going over to Spain a few times to try and kidnap this guy and every time it was foiled by one way or another it was foiled by um, his whole family turning up what, the day we were going to kidnap him it was foiled again when some friends came to visit and um, a coachload of them turned up and um, it was finally foiled again the last time when um, an ex-para and myself was just struck down with a mystery illness wow. while we were there and had to come home early yeah. Um, and funnily enough, the day we arrived back in Heathrow, we suddenly felt cured. Really? We were we were bedridden, we were shaking, we were shivering, we couldn't do anything. We had to abandon the whole the whole thing and come f get early flights back, landed in Heathrow, and we we were ravenously hungry. We felt so much better. Well, we'll leave it there for part one, but join me and my guest John Lawson in part two to hear more about his amazing story. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. He's the pastor famous for marrying Kanye West and Kim Kardashian. We talked to the megachurch preacher, Rich Wilkerson Jr. Jesus told us to love our neighbours, but do we even know who they are? Read our shocking reports. Plus, discover how Catholics are questioning the Pope's views on doctrine and why are so many young men following Jordan B. Peterson? For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. Now today I'm in conversation with John Lawson and before the break we heard John about your involvement in debt collecting. Looking back now, do you do you put that down to anything sort of spiritual or unusual? You know, was that was that God protecting you from from going further even further into a life of crime than you would at that point? Well, I used to joke at the time that uh this this particular guy, he must have uh, a guardian angel or something, right, yeah. you know. Um, Cuz you came so close to actually kidnapping him and Yeah, and also as well um it, it that would have resulted in murder. I'm sorry to say that man would have had to have been killed, right? Because he had so much money. This was where we contemplated what happens now. You know, we we've done a few jobs before. We've kidnapped a lot of people, held them hostage. They paid their money. Again, these people couldn't report anything to the police. Mm. So the you know, there's there's no police investigation looking for me for unsolved crimes. They're right, yeah. absolutely unreported. The people yeah. couldn't couldn't go to the police. Um, so that risk element um, was was never there. I always thought we would never get caught. Mm. Every criminal thinks that. They don't wake up in the morning and think, you know, 
this is going to be the day when the police catch me. <laughs> we all we all think we're smarter than the police. And um, I guess really I knew with this guy that he had a lot of millions. He had about 20, 28 million. Wow. So if we were taking 13 off him, I don't suppose he would be very happy yeah. at that. And I knew he had the means and the finances to be able to try and find out who we were. Now, look, I'm I'm not boasting about any of this stuff. I'm very, very ashamed of it today. Um, and also, you won't hear my names in criminal circles. There won't be, you know, I'm not I'm not pretending to be some kind of cray twin or mm-hmm. some kind of famous gangster. No, we were very low key under the radar. We worked um, just really um, word of mouth, and you you wouldn't hear about us unless you happen to have seen something in a newspaper. And um, again, we prided ourselves on this. We were, we were the professionals. Mm. And um, yeah, to my shame, I was the one that decided that if we were going to have to kill this guy, I would put the bullet in his head. And then being so stupidly cold that we were then going to book lunch afterwards and celebrate. Wow. So that's that's the idiot that I was. Mm. And that was that was my former life. Finally, though, back home, the the police finally caught up with me because the job was foiled, we needed a bit of money, a bit of quick money. We took on a job where a friend of mine was owed some money by his girlfriend's ex-husband who'd refused to pay back a a big loan and uh, we intervened, threatened him and his family and uh, there was just so much evidence against me. And this guy, of course, could go to the police because he wasn't a criminal. Yeah. And um, the police finally caught up with me in 2003 I was caught by the police. I was on bail for a year, and then I went to the High Court in Edinburgh, where I was um, found guilty of attempted extortion, and I got sentenced to four years in prison. And and, and even when the was it when the judgment was pronounced, um, didn't you you say something that landed you even in more trouble? Well, what happened was the. Um, I was the only one out of out of the gang that were caught at that time, and the police investigation was continuing. So they were checking all of our mobile phones, text messages, emails, CCTV on the streets, and it took about a month. I was in prison about a month, and they rounded up the rest of the guys, and they took me from prison one day, and I said, "Where are we going?" They said, "You're going to court to be uh, a witness against your friends that we've caught," mm-hmm. and I and I said, "That's just not happening." Yeah, and they said, "No, no, it's." Uh, it's you're a compellable witness. It's the crown call it. You're a compellable witness. You must give evidence today, and if you don't, you'll get done for contempt of court. Right. So they took me to the court, and um, you're just standing in a corridor, and there's there's one door in the corridor. What you don't realise is that, that door leads directly into the witness box, into the main courtroom. So it's just a corridor, and then they open the door and thrust you in there, and you're in this dock. And the judges on the left, and your friends are directly ahead of you. There's a jury. There's a packed courtroom, and um, the judge said, "Pick up that Bible, and um, swear to tell the truth and the whole truth, or nothing but the truth." And I was a bit rude to the judge and told him where he could stick his evidence. And um, yeah, well, he thanked me and uh, gave me a year and a half extra. Wow! Uh, so I got done for contempt of court, and so now I was actually it was 15 months extra. So now I was serving five years and three months. And this was for an initial charge of attempted extortion. Yeah, plus this extra charge of contempt of court now. And then the um, Proceeds of Crime Act um, came into force and they seized all the assets. Had a big, big house just outside Edinburgh and a Range Rover and a big motorcycle. My wife had a nice car and we had money in the bank and they they seized a lot and they wanted £100,000 from me. And then you get into a bargaining, bartering uh, situation with the Crown Prosecution, or as the, or in Scotland as the Procurator Procu, Procurator Fiscal, the PF for short, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you begin to barter down. We we got it down to about forty thousand in the end. That meant my home had to be sold, assets frozen, and um, my wife and my children had to go into temporary accommodation, which I, I felt now I felt bad about. Mm. Now the effects of my crimes. It was all starting to kick in. It was after, kicking in, yeah. After years of kind of getting away with this stuff, That's suddenly right. the authorities catch up with you, and you had you had to pay back, I guess. 
Yeah, and also as well, that, you know, I'm still thinking at that point I'm a, I'm a good guy. Right. Because while I was on bail, um, I rescued nine people out of a, a burning building and um, wow. I got put um, I got put forward for awards. I got really? uh, awards from the police and awards from the fire chief and all these all these awards for, for bravery and all this kind of stuff, you know. And we tried to use that as evidence in court to say, <laughs> he's not such a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> I think... You know, like typically when you speak to non-Christians today and you ask them about whether God will let you into heaven or not, uh, the, the typical response will be, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. Yeah. You know, and so there was, I was thinking, well, I'm I'm a I'm a good guy. You know, yes. I'm one of the good guys. And um, the judge said, well, oh, you clearly you don't think about your actions because normal people would have stopped, phoned the fire brigade, waited, mm. but you you ran into the building, put your life at risk, and it just shows you. The kind of man that you are, you're a danger to society, kind right. of thing. So I got lambasted. Wow. For for it. <laughs> Not um, even saving people out of a burning uh, house. The, yeah, the judge wasn't building. impressed by that. Uh, but 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 was that because he'd heard all this other weight of evidence by that point? I guess. Yeah, of course, of course. And you know, as today, today as a Christian, uh, and also it's good experience for me when people say, uh, talk about, you know, can you earn your way into heaven if I'm good enough? I can say to them, well, look, I've been in court, you know, and yeah. uh, I couldn't bribe the judge with my good no. works. So what makes you think you can do the same <laughs> to God, you know? But, um, of course, at that point, I, I, I didn't know God at all. I, no. I, um, I I didn't have any belief. And you were off to off to prison, as you say, for five mm. years. And it was it was that moment, really, in prison that your life turned around. Um, but first of all, before we get there, tell me what, what prison was like. Sometimes you hear people say that, well, prisons in the UK, they're very easy places and, you know, you get your own TV and stuff. Was, was that was that your experience? Yeah. Prisons in the UK are very easy and you get your own TV and stuff. And, um, you know, all joking aside, the prisons in this country are very cushy compared to some of the prisons I visit today. And I've visited prisons in about 20 countries some of the toughest, most horrible prisons you can imagine on this planet. Uh, believe me, the prisons in the UK, we have got it good. Um, the one thing, though, all prisons have in common is your liberty is taken from you, and mm-hmm. that's the greatest punishment. Yeah, It doesn't matter. You stick someone in a room and give them, give them a, a TV and a PlayStation and a radio and three meals a day, they might be happy for a little while. I'm pretty sure there'll be some people in some countries would swap their their free lives now for the life of a prisoner in the UK because they can get access to education, to the gym, uh, to a bit of work. They get fed. There's no bills. But I tell you, at the end of the day, when that door's locked and all you've got is yourself in the prison bars, um, that's when the punishment kicks in, when you have no freedom, when that liberty's been removed from you or you're on the phone home and your missus is having a hard time or one of your kids has been bullied or there's something and you, you can't get out. One of your kids is sick and has to go to the hospital and you're stuck there in prison. Uh, that's when it will hit people the hardest. So, um, yeah. And so for you in prison, you did find yourself thinking about what you'd done. Did you become remorseful? No, no I was just thinking about more crime. I, really? I, I was already planning when I get out of prison um, I'm just going to take back everything. I'm, right. I, I knew who was going to get kidnapped. Yeah. I knew who was going to get held hostage. I wasn't going to work for these clients anymore. I was going to put my own team together, and we were going to go and get all that money in that guy's office right. and keep it for ourselves. And so oh, my plan was just pure crime. Yeah. Um, when I was in prison, my my wife, after a few months, she just had enough. She was unaware of a lot of things I got up to. And uh, so we got divorced. And I was just thinking, okay, I'll just go straight back to crime. It wouldn't take me long. I'll get all the money together and um, I'll start a new life. But things changed for me. I guess about four months into my prison sentence, I made friends with a Nigerian guy. Uh, His name was Tony. And uh, he was quite different from the other prisoners. You know, in prison you meet many characters, from the most manipulative to the most violent to... um, to those who just had troubled lives, to the uneducated, to people from very, very impoverished backgrounds who maybe can't even read or write, to people that have never been in trouble before, but now they've driven a little bit too fast, had an accident, someone was killed, they're now serving five years for causing death by dangerous driving. And um, the whole mixture together 
is uh, is quite an interesting mixture. But uh, Tony was different from the other prisoners. He never asked you the usual questions you get asked. When you go into prison, and I hope you don't, Sam. <laughs> so if do you, I. <laughs> if you ever end up in prison, guaranteed the first question you're going to be asked by the first person you meet is, how long are you doing mm. and what are you in for? What are you in for, yeah. Tony never asked those questions, and uh, he was a nice guy. He was a real nice guy. But there was one thing I really didn't like about him at that point. It was his faith. He was a Christian. And he was always talking to me about this God and Jesus and... And I used to th think he was crazy. And also, uh, um, about 10 years earlier, my mum had become a Christian. And me and my brother thought she'd lost the plot, you know. She was going along to this happy, clappy church. And uh, we were like, you know, have they brainwashed her? She's in some kind of cult now. She wants to pray before we have dinner and all this kind of nonsense. We, every time we went around the house, she'd have premier radio on for goodness sake you know? <laughs> honestly premier christian uh, radio wow i was thinking what has got into her you know <laughs> mum's lost her mind uh, and that was just my attitude towards yeah. christianity at that point but uh every thursday in my prison there was a pastor from dunblane christian fellowship called um, duncan strathdy and duncan um he came from that community where the mad that madman killed all those children and teachers in the primary school mm. So for him to still be willing to come into prison and deal with guys that were in for yeah. shooting people was was um, it was quite impressive as far as I was concerned. But that's not what lured me there. What lured me to the Bible study was Tony told me that um, this guy would bring in cake and coffee and biscuits. It was the biscuits that lured you. It was the biscuits and the coffee because uh, we used to have this horrible coffee, and I heard they had the sachets of the of the nice branded coffee, the real know? stuff, yeah. the real deal. So I I changed my mind. And I went along to the Bible study with the intention of filling my pockets. Um, I, I always remembered that when Christians pray, they close their eyes. And they had a little table in this small chapel. With uh, it was, You used to go in and be on the right-hand side. There'd be a little baskets with coffee sachets and sugar and biscuits. And I thought, great. When they're all in their little holy huddles praying, I'm going to fill my pockets. When they've got their eyes closed praying, yeah. you can you can nick what the a, biscuits. What a better opportunity when <laughs> someone's got their eyes closed. So, um, But before I could steal anything, this pastor made us all come and sit down. And I remember there being about 12 other guys there. I'd seen them in the prison yard. I didn't really know them. Just, just passed them in the corridor. Mostly lifers, uh, multiple lifers, murderers. And... I was struck by how happy they appeared in this uh, environment. Because in prison, you don't have much to be happy about. Mm. And then, um, yeah, the pastor got this guitar out. And at that point, I really regretted being there. Because I was imagining kumbayas and hallelujahs now. Yeah. And I was also imagining it being a bit high church. And um, I don't mean that in an offensive way for anyone that's in the high church, but I, I thought it was going to be a bit stiff and a mm -hmm. bit singing in high-pitched voices. Yeah. All I could imagine was um, some episodes of Songs of Praise that I would have flicked over really quickly. Yeah. Um, so I regretted it, and he handed out, out these song sheets, these laminated song sheets. And the first song they began to sing was Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. And um, I remember just being, feeling, I uh, just coming over emotional. And as I looked at them, and they began to sing, I looked at this pastor playing the guitar like like he had no inhibitions. And as I began to read the words, I began to cry. And I hid my face behind the song sheet. I really didn't want anyone to see me crying in prison. And that's all I can remember about that particular first day. Uh, interestingly enough, I... Um, I was preaching at the church of that pastor recently and with tears in his eyes at the end he said to the congregation I remember John when he first walked in here now I walked in there to steal right he said I remember him that first day he walked in he says what an arrogant so and so he said and I said no you're right And um, but I don't remember much more about that night I had a restless sleep really restless sleep I guess I had a lot to think about mm. And the next morning, the guards opened my door, Friday morning, and uh, there's this Nigerian guy, Tony, there, with a Bible in his hand, which he 
forced into my hand. I reluctantly took it and threw it onto my bed. And um, that night when I was locked up, I opened this Bible for the first time. And really what I read impacted me. And it's also where I get the title of my book, which we're going to come on to shortly. But um, it impacted me in such a way because that was the night that I realized I wasn't the good guy. I realized I couldn't justify my actions anymore. I realized I was wicked and I need realized I needed to change. And I just opened the Bible in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 27 to 32. And it says this, But if a wicked man turns away from the wickedness that he has committed, and if he does what is just and right, he can save his life, he won't have to die. Because he considers all of the offences he's committed, he turns away from them, he will surely live. And then we get the complaint. Because then the house of Israel, they complain. They say, oh, oh, the ways of the Lord are not just. <laughs> and God, oh man, he, he, it's like he leans down from heaven and he says, no, <laughs> is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore I will judge each one of you according to your ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent. Rid yourself of all the offences you committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. So I read those words and it hit me like a thunderbolt. It really did. I knew I was a wicked man. And I knew nothing else apart from the fact that I had this desire inside of me for a new heart and a new spirit. But I didn't know how to get it. Um, I couldn't figure it out. How do you get this new heart and new spirit? What, what do you have to do to get it? I mean, what do you do just to say, okay, God, give me a new heart and new spirit? I mean, is there any requirements? Have I got to do something? Have I got to try and be good uh, for the rest of my life and give money to charity? I mean, how do you how do you get this? So I had all those kind of questions. And um, the following week, I went back to the Bible study and really just asked that pastor, is this true, this stuff? And I think I just really confessed to him that at that point, I needed a new heart and a new spirit. I just wanted it, but I didn't know how to get it. And he just shared the gospel message with me in a very, very simple way. Very simple way. He spoke my language. He spoke... Remember, I'm in prison, okay? Mm, yeah. um, and, oh, and by the way, <laughs> there are many of your listeners right now who are in prison. Mm. Oh, okay, yes. They might be tuned into their nice radio in their home. Um, they may not be behind bars, mm. but believe me, they're in a prison right now. And, and and if you're listening, you, you you know it. You can be in a prison to things you look at on the internet that you shouldn't be looking at. You could be in a prison to anger or violence. You could be in a prison to alcohol or some kind of habit or drug. You could be in a prison in church, actually, where you are doing all the right things but have no relationship with Christ. But uh, there I was in a real prison. And uh, I just knew, I knew I wanted this new heart and new spirit. And the, this pastor said to me, you know, John, you you did wrong, you committed crimes, and you were caught, and you stood before a judge. Um, that judge, if he was to take bribes, uh, he wouldn't be a very fair judge, would he? And I told him the story about winning these bravery awards. So it didn't matter how many bravery awards you put before him mm, to yeah. show him how, how good you were, it, nothing was going to work. You were standing before that judge for the crimes that you committed and you were found guilty and of course lawfully you had to be in prison mm. now let's just say the judge attached a, a, a fine that if it was paid you could walk free but it would be so excessive you would never be able to pay it 10 million pounds or something um, if that fine was paid it doesn't matter who paid it you could have been set free Yeah, I said okay so far so good I'm with you and he said, well, you know, that's how much God loves you, John. That one day when you die, you're going to stand before God on what Christians we call Judgment Day. And on that day, you'll stand before God. And do you think that you'll be guilty or innocent? And he talked to me, he said, have you heard of the Ten Commandments? It's what Christians, we, we refer to it as the law. You see, the law, and I had broken laws. And he said, you know, how many, law, how many of God's laws do you think you've broken? They lied and cheated and stolen us. Well, everyone's done those things. And uh, he said, exactly. There isn't one person in this world alive today, past, present or future, that has never broken any of God's laws. And therefore, we're all in a bit of trouble when we stand before a righteous and holy and just God. 
Um, I said, well, well, we're all in trouble then. He said, do you think, you know, you're going to go to heaven or hell? I said, well, with what you've just said, I, I, I'm definitely I'm headed to hell. And uh, he said to me, well, here's the most amazing thing. that Because God loved you, he sent Jesus Christ to this world to live a perfect life, to to live the most amazing, perfect life like no one else, and then to die a cruel, painful death on the cross, to take the punishment that you deserve for breaking all of God's laws, that by his grace and his grace alone, you do not have to go to that place called hell because Jesus paid your fine for you in the same way if someone yeah. paid your fine. Jesus paid your fine. Mm. And he said to me, you know what? Think about it like this. Because God is just and holy, everything God does has to be legal. Mm. You know. And I was like, yeah, I never thought of it like that before. So he says, so now, because of what Christ did for you on that cross, because your fine was paid, it's like Christ wrote a check your life and after three days when God raised him from the dead it's like the check cleared and he said and from that point onwards God can now legally dismiss the case against you if you're willing to accept that check in other words if you're willing to turn away from your sins and put your faith and trust in Christ surrender your life to him make him your Lord and Savior and I promise you if you're genuine God will give you that new heart and that new spirit yeah and that's what you did that's what I did in that prison. And really, I guess, you know, I, I, I can't leave this station today without um, speaking directly to the listener right now. That whatever prison you're in, um, I promise you, God can give you a new heart. If he can take an animal like me, a violent man, uh, if he can turn me into the man I am today, then there's hope for you, my friend. There's mm. hope for you sitting in your living room now or in your car or listening to this on the internet. There is hope for you in Jesus Christ because he has paid your fine. God doesn't have to um, punish you in that way because Christ took the punishment that you and I deserve by his grace. If you turn and put your faith in him, I promise you, you too will get a new heart and new spirit. And and that uh, that turnaround that you experienced, um, as you say, is is documented in your new book, which is titled "If a Wicked Man," and uh, is out now. Um, but tell me a bit about what you're what you're doing now. So you know, two half of your life, I guess. You know, the first half we've we've spoken about in great detail about the life of crime that you led and how you ended up in prison. But but since that moment in that prison where you accepted Christ and your life turned around. You've been doing some very different things, and you're still hanging out with criminals, actually, aren't you? But yeah. in a very different way. You know, it's interesting, Sam. I've been into more prisons today as a free man than I ever did as a criminal. Yeah. It's just so ironic, isn't yes. it? God has got an amazing sense of humor. Um, you see... So you go around prisons internationally. I, I, I found something so important. I found Jesus Christ, and he changed me. And I really believe that if you're a Christian... There should be some evidence that Christ has changed you. And if there is, there will be a desire in you to share your faith. After all, those disciples spent three years with Christ, all for this one reason, that Christ could pass on this great commission to them. And, um, you know, Christians, we're we're called to go and share our faith. I'm so sad that so many Christians don't. Mm. Um, And so when I left prison with this new heart and new spirit, I just knew I had to tell people. And um, I'm, I now run a ministry called Escape Ministries. Ironically, again, Escape Ministries. Um, I've been doing that for the last eight years. I, I live and work by faith. I don't say that in a boastful way. Oh, look, look at me. I'm you know, living this way. But um, I, I'm saying that boastfully in the respect that God has provided for me. That in the, in the last eight years, I've been to over 20 countries. I've spoken into some of the toughest, most violent prisons on the planet. I get invited into schools and colleges. For goodness sake, I have never been to Bible school or studied theology. And I find myself pinching myself when I'm standing in a pastor's conference teaching pastors. Mm. Because I I believe that operating today as an evangelist, I I need to live up to the job requirements as laid out in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. That it was God who gave the church apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists to prepare God's people for works of service. So for me, I'm, I'm afraid, I don't really want to have a go at any evangelists out there, but if you're an evangelist, 
then you ought to be preparing God's people for works of service. It's just not good enough that you go and share the gospel, which, by the way, is is amazing. You keep doing that. But if that's all you're doing, I don't think you're fulfilling that role as an evangelist. So for me, there's a twofold aspect to ministry, which I've been operating in for the last eight years, reaching and teaching. Reaching the lost by being invited to outreach events to share my story and the gospel message, most importantly. And secondly, um, teaching and equipping Christians how to share their faith in a, a very normal, relevant way so we don't come across as the proverbial Bible basher. And so it's been an incredible journey, I guess, the last eight years. And people say to me, how can you go travel to all these countries? You don't have any money. You don't have any doll. You've got very little support. Well, I've got a mighty God and he's provided for me and he gets me to places. And of course, now we've got to the stage where um, I was telling my story so often that people were saying, oh, you, you should you should write a book. Right. Yeah. And I had no desire, you know, what to write another Christian book that was just going to be sold in Christian bookshops and mm-hmm. sit in Christian shelves. Yeah. I, I'm really sorry. I'm not interested at all in tickling any Christian's ears. I'm interested in getting the gospel to uh, to the lost, and I'm also really interested in encouraging and equipping Christians to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from that, um, I, I'm, you know, I'll leave everything else to to other people. That's the area that I'm working. And um, it's the best thing. I I get so much pleasure, enjoyment, encouragement, and life, and life in all its abundance by sharing my faith. And um, I I happened to bump into a guy who was an author. Um, His name is John Seeley. And um, actually, it was in a market stall in New Haven in East Sussex. I was running a little stall. I was giving away free Bibles that day. And uh, he's not a Christian. And he walked past and uh, he said to me, what's a big bloke like you doing, giving out Bibles, mate, you know? And we got talking, I shared a bit of testimony, and he said, well, I'm, a, I'm an author. Your story fascinates me. I'm not a Christian, but I'm interested in what it was that changed you. Mm. So I thought about that, and I thought, okay, I quite like the idea of a non-Christian writing the book because yeah, I want to get it to Christians, but have say have a Christian publisher. Yeah. Uh, and then also in the early days um, of beginning to unravel the years of your story, I realized that um, by going into bookshops that there are no Christian testimony books that I can see in in the mainstream uh, bookstores. And you have to go to a Christian bookshop. Yeah, sure. I mean, you could you can order... You know, let, let let's pick let's pick one from history that everyone knows: the Cross and the Switchblade, for instance. Um, that's a book that maybe Christians will want to give to their non-Christian friend. But of course, it's got you know images of cross on it, or it says on it from from gangster to preacher, that kind of thing. Uh, and so, there's only a few non-Christians are actually going to actually take it and read it. And then I thought, well, what non-Christian is actually going to going to purposely go into a Christian bookshop to buy a Christian testimony book? It's unlikely. And I was really, really had this vision for if I'm going to do the book, then I need to get it into the mainstream bookstores. And also, it needs to be an evangelistic tool. So the kind of book that the non-Christian wants to and is easily able to give to a non-Christian friend. So we've been very strategic with this. Mm. God gave me the vision, gave me the name. I Every time I share my testimony, I share the, the scripture from Ezekiel. I was in New Zealand visiting prisons there, and I prayed, Ask God to give me a title. Woke up in the morning, if a wicked man. Yeah, and it's if right back from man. that, uh, as you say, right back from that moment where you read that passage in, a, in Ezekiel. Yeah. Uh, but as you say, you know, it, it's a book that um, you managed to take into the mainstream. You've been launching in uh, in Waterstones and W. H. Smiths in, in this country, and of course, this book will follow you around the world as you continue to share your testimony in, in prisons internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid we're out of time, but John Lawson, thank you so much for joining us today on the profile. It's been Amazing to hear your story. And if people want to hear more, as I say, the book is called If a Wicked Man, and it's out now. But John, thank you very much for coming in. You're very welcome. Bless you. Thanks, Sam. You're listening to the Profile Podcast. That was my interview with John Lawson. I do hope you enjoyed that. If you want to check out more great Christian content, why not get yourself a free copy of Premier Christianity magazine? Just go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We're very grateful to you for downloading this episode 
of the profile. If you enjoyed it, then please do share this episode and share the podcast in general with your friends. The other thing you can do that would really help us out is rating and reviewing this podcast wherever you found it. If it was on iTunes or elsewhere, just head over there, give us a rating, give us a little review. Be great to have your feedback. For now, though, thanks so much for joining us on the show. We will see you this time next week.